your people gathered here, your people gathered in churches all across the world would glory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we would count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because He has died and He is risen. And we thank You for that, Lord God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work a transformative work in us. We pray that those who do not know You, Lord, would hear Your voice today calling them to, to be one of yours, to, to belong to you and to be freed from sin and death, to come out of the grave like Lazarus, to be loosed and let go, to serve you in new life, Lord God. God, we pray for those of us who have been slothful in serving you, who have been cold in faith. Lord, we pray that you, the fire of God would, would burn in us today, Lord God, and that we would be people who would be, who would Lay everything that we are on the altar as living sacrifices for you, O God. Because you gave everything for us, Lord God. And we have nothing apart from you that is worth clinging to, Lord God. God, we pray for those that are being faithful in the struggle right now. That your great power, your resurrection power would come upon them. And that they would be able to to serve and, and to endure and to overcome, Lord God. So that they may receive from you a crown, a name, a pillar, Lord God. We pray that all of those things would take place, Lord God, in your church. That sinners would be called. That the, the, the sleeping would be awakened, that the faithful would be strengthened, Lord God. And all of this we pray, that it would be done not for our name, not for a church, but for your glory, Lord God. That your glory would go up like a flame before this world that, as the Bible says, many would see, many would fear, and many would put their trust in the Lord. We ask all of this in the precious, holy, wonderful name of our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we are reading John 20, 19 through 29. That's on page 529 in the Blue Bibles in the seat back and seat pocket in front of you. Um, you can take one home. If you don't have one, they're our gift to you. That's John 20, 19 through 29, page 529. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, have not seen, and yet have believed. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it represents that you are risen indeed. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to gather and to listen to your word and remember again that we serve a God who lives, who speaks, who is active, who is still calling sinners to repentance and to new life. And so, Lord, we pray that that would be at the forefront of our minds this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I present this word. Lord, you know all of my weaknesses and frailties. And, Lord, I pray that you would overshadow them all and that I would be able to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit your truth today and speak it accurately, clearly, and authoritatively, Lord God. God, I thank you for this moment, and I thank you for what you're going to do. And we just lay this before you as an offering And we just ask you to bless it, bless it to the hearers, bless it to their hearts, bless it to sinners, to to, uh, bring them to repentance, bless it to to the saints, to cause them to love you more and to become greater worshipers of you. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus, my Lord. Vainly they watch his bed, Jesus, my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead, Jesus, my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And this is the fundamental proclamation of the church of the living God. Our proclamation is not simply that Jesus died. No matter how noble of a thing that is, no matter how horrific the details of his death are, if we only were those who proclaimed that Jesus had died, we would offer you absolutely no hope. Because guess what? We're all going to die. But the difference is that Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose, he, he lives, he has risen, and he lives forevermore. He will never taste death again. As the the scripture that Pastor David read at the beginning of our service, the Bible tells us that that God will not let His Holy One, Jesus, see corruption in the grave. So we here at Northridge Life, if you're our guest, and I know we have many this morning, we reject a toothless concept of a spiritual or metaphorical resurrection, that this was some sort of kind of spiritual analogy. No, no, no. We are here today to proclaim to you the actual 
physical resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place right in the middle of human history. And we're also going to make the assertion that all of human history hinges on that one point. There is nothing more important in all of human history, all of the events in man's slow march of time, nothing is more important than the fact that Jesus Christ is risen. This is what Paul had in mind when he opened his great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus Christ absolutely proved his resurrection by appearing to many. I heard a man recently say that an empty grave is not a proof of anything. It's evidence of something. But when Jesus shows up and looks you in the eyeballs, that's proof of something. Jesus is alive and he showed himself alive. The Bible says in Acts with many infallible proofs, he showed up and and was face to face with people. And I want to reiterate my point that without the resurrection, Christianity, this may sound like a terrible thing for a preacher to say, but without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. If there is no resurrection, go home, go back to sleep, enjoy the day. But because the resurrection is real, it matters. The, the, the message that we proclaim, the gospel that we proclaim matters simply because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Christianity is just vain human philosophy of morals and religion. But because of the resurrection, the gospel we preach is good news. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who dares believe it. The implications of a Christianity, if you can call it that, without a robust theology of the resurrection are staggering. This is what Paul said about that kind of Christianity. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. A Christianity without the resurrection cannot deliver you from anything. It cannot find you forgiven of anything. But a Christianity of the resurrection can do all of those things and more. Jesus' apostles did not go into the world to proclaim Jesus Christ as a good moral teacher. That was not their point at all. They didn't go out to the world to proclaim Jesus as the head of a new religion. But these men died horrible deaths because they could not and they would not deny the reality that they had seen and that they had known Jesus Christ is alive. And that 
reality was so real to them that they could not deny it. And they went to their graves proclaiming that reality. In their writings across the New Testament, they assert that this reality of Christ rising from the dead proves that God has heard Jesus, that he has accepted his sacrifice, and that he has been crowned Lord of all by his Father. It is only because Christ is raised that you and I can be forgiven and accepted by God. And because of this, because of his death, his obedience and death, and his subsequent acceptance by God by being raised from the dead, God has appointed him judge. This is how uh, Paul put it when he spoke in Athens. He said in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now that's a real important thing for you to know. Because most of you have been in churches where you are invited to repent. But that's not what the gospel says. The Bible says that all people everywhere are not invited to repent. They're commanded to repent. And and this is why. Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He's given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. So in our text today, that Danae read us, when we wind up at the place where we wound up, it's Sunday morning. The women have arrived at the tomb where Jesus has been buried since Friday night. They've come to mourn and they've come to further embalm him. But to their surprise, they find that the stone the Jews had demanded gets put in front of the, the grave to keep people from messing with it. That stone has been rolled away. The Roman seal that meant certain death if you were to break that seal has been broken. And the soldiers that were under orders to guard that tomb have been knocked out cold. These faithful women who followed Jesus during his ministry saw angels there who told them that Jesus, in fact, had, has, had been risen from the dead. And they would appear, and, uh, and that Jesus, they told them, would re- appear to them later physically. When they returned and told Peter and John what happened, they both, Peter and John both ran to the tomb. In fact, I love that passage because John actually brags about outrunning Peter to the tomb. John's just human like the rest of us, isn't he? I heard someone say that John wrote that when he was about a hundred years old, and so he probably hadn't outrun anybody for a long time, so he had to get, get that little jab in at Peter. But they come to the tomb and they see the tomb empty. They see Jesus' grave clothes discarded. And John, the Bible tells us, immediately believed when he saw this. But Christ's first resurrected appearance was actually to Mary Magdalene. When she returned later to the tomb, she thought, the Bible tells us, that he was the gardener working in the cemetery. But believed, she believed when Christ spoke to her. And he sent her back to the disciples to tell them that he would be appearing to them shortly. So the disciples gathered in hiding because, the Bible tells us, they were afraid that the Jews might come for them like they had come for Christ. And surely, you can imagine, locked away, they'd heard this report. They had not seen Jesus. They're processing everything the women had told them. Could it be that Jesus had possibly risen? Can you imagine? We read these things so confidently because 
of where we live in the historical timeline. But can you imagine what your mind would be processing if somebody told you that someone you love dearly who you had just buried was alive and well? What would your mind be doing to you? Because you've lived long enough to know that uh, dead people generally stay dead, right? Can we all at least agree on that? And so I can't imagine what the, what the torment, what the process was of thinking that through. And this is what the Bible tells us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that evening, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Now, I don't want you to read over that peace be with you. That's not like, hello, guys. Peace be with you is, is a powerful thing. Peace be with you. Remember what the angels sang when Jesus was born? Peace on earth, goodwill to those on whom God's favor rests. And Jesus is saying, after hanging on the cross uh, uh, three days before and saying, it is finished, now he can come into this room of these men who believe in him and say, peace be with you. He says, now, because of what I have done, I have made it possible for you to have peace with God. And there they were, (laughs) minding their own business, behind locked doors, no less. And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up. Now, I have to say this. Some of you, Subscribe to a a theology that says Jesus needs your permission to come into your life. But I want you to think about what you just read and, and realize that you should be aware that Jesus doesn't even need your permission to come into your house. Doesn't matter if the doors are locked. Jesus does what he wants to do. The Bible says in Psalms 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases... He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all deeps. And if I may add, behind locked doors, Jesus does what he pleases. And so Jesus is standing there and he allows them to see and touch his hands, his feet, his side to prove to them that he had in fact risen and he wasn't just some sort of ghost. In Luke's account, we're told that Jesus asked for something to eat and he ate it right in front of them. And then John adds this almost understatement. He says, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, again, just imagine that this you were there and this happened and you had seen him die. You'd, you had seen him uh, uh, crucified, nails through his hands and feet. You've see, you'd seen the mockery and the beatings and you saw at the end of it all, after he cries out, into your hands I commend my spirit, you saw a Roman soldier drive a spear into his side, right into his heart, and that's the guy that's standing right in your midst right now. Again, we're so used to this story that sometimes we lose lose a grip on the magnitude of the story. A dead man, formerly dead man, is standing there right in their midst. And when the disciples saw, they were glad. Of course they were. None of it had ever seen anything close to this. And next, Jesus told them, standing there with them, that he was sending them out as he himself had been sent. In fact, the word apostle means the one who is sent. 
But they wouldn't have to go in their own power. The Bible tells, them, it tells us that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. See, the risen Lord imparted the Holy Spirit who would come to them in fullness on the day of Pentecost. And, and the Holy Spirit gave them power to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. But this was also a picture what all believers, that means you, what all believers in the gospel could expect. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit was poured out, in, in describing what had just happened, in this outpouring of the Spirit, he said these words, and these should give you great comfort, great encouragement. He said, for, this, for the promise is for you. Everyone say, it's for me. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, the Lord our God calls to himself. See, the sealing of the Holy Spirit commissioned these men as his apostles, the ones who would tell the story of Christ with perfect spirit-inspired recall to the entire Roman world within one single generation. And they did so without the aid of any electronic media. They didn't have any official government position, no official endorsement from the government. And in addition to forgiving and retaining sins, God would work tremendous miracles of healings through their hands and set many people free from the oppression of demonic spirits. Many of them would write letters and teach doctrine that would become the New Testament about Christ. But for whatever reason, and we're not told why in the text, and I am not going to try and speculate this morning, all the disciples were not present to hear this powerful commission. The scripture tells us, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I read that this week and I wondered, what will you miss? If you're not where you're supposed to be, what will you miss out on if you're not where you're supposed to be? What will you miss if you call yourself a believer, a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and you're not diligently giving your attention to the Bible? What will you miss? What will you miss if you routinely neglect the hour of prayer? What will you miss? You're not where you're supposed to be. What will you miss if you fail to gather with the saints on Sunday, fail to serve, fail to love? What will you miss because you're not where you're supposed to be? In Thomas's case, he missed a lot, as you can see. It's a lot of really cool stuff that he could have been a part of, but he wasn't there. But most of all, he didn't hear firsthand the blessing that Christ gave. Peace be with you. And he didn't see the commission that Christ imparted. He didn't see the resurrected Lord displaying his scars that he earned in obedience to the Father. He didn't you know, see the feet, the side. He didn't see any of that. And therefore he began to doubt. He doubted his closest friends and allies, what they were trying to share with him, this wonderful news that they're trying to share. The Bible says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see 
in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And all around us, maybe even in this room, there are people who have put all kinds of obstacles to the truth of God's word. Unless this, unless that, I will never believe. Now I want you to think about this. What was the first thing Jesus did when he showed up the first time behind locked doors? It says he showed them his feet, his hands. He showed them his feet. He showed them his side. And now Peter or uh, Thomas rather is uh, is demanding that Jesus do what Jesus had already done. Just think about that. Marinate in that just a little bit. How often do we demand that the Lord do what he has already done. I have many times had people come into my office. Seriously. It's happened more times than I can count. And say they're, they're going through some sort of emotional pain. Some sort of distress. And they'll say, I wish God would just show me that he loved me. I'm like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? What is the cross? What is the empty tomb? What is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Are you asking God to up the ante on the ways that He showed you that He loves you? Sometimes we want more than what God has already done. And what I want to proclaim to you this morning is that what God has already done is more than sufficient. Also, people will often confess their unbelief to me, their struggle to believe. And yet I've noticed over the years that they always talk as though they're the passive victim of doubt. (sighs) Just having a hard time believing that, Pastor. I'm just having a hard time believing it. But let me just tell you this. You are never a passive victim of doubt. That is never the case. Please hear me. Unbelief doesn't just creep up on you. Unbelief is an active sin. It happens when you ignore or disregard what God has said in His Word, what He's already done, or what He's doing through His church. That's when unbelief takes hold of you. This wasn't a new trait in Thomas. If you're familiar with especially John's gospel, you'll know that. You know, he has this terrible moniker that he earned after this event of doubting Thomas. How would you like to be dead for 2,000 years and be known as doubting Paul or doubting Keegan? You know, that's, that's a bummer of a nickname. But this, there's a reason for this. This wasn't a new trait in Thomas. Listen to me, hard times don't often create new types of sin in us. Did you know that? But what hard times will do is they'll reveal in us what's already there. Thomas had a propensity towards doubt. We have at least two snapshots of him earlier in John's gospel wrestling with the same type of thing. This is my favorite. First of all, as Jesus announces his intention to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead... The disciples remind Jesus, they say, hey, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you recall this, but when you were there a few days ago, the Jews tried to kill you. So we're not 
exactly endorsing your idea to go back to Judea because, you know, the Jews are looking to you. You have a price on your head. And, and so in reminding them of this, Jesus says, we're going. We got to work while it's day. We're going to do this. But Thomas, great man of faith that he is, brimming with faith, says this to the Lord Jesus. Let us go also that we may die with him. Way to put your faith in the Lord there, Tommy. How many people had Thomas at this point seen Jesus heal? We know that on at least two occasions he'd seen Jesus bring people back to life. We know this. But what I want you to see is that Thomas placed more faith in the Jewish leader's ability to kill Jesus than he did in Jesus' ability to make others alive. And seeing this as a foregone conclusion, he takes a martyr's position. Man, if we die, we die. Next, that's, that was the first example. Next, when Jesus tells his, example, his disciples, he says, Hey, with that great opening to John chapter 14, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to bring you back to be with me. Oh, man, what a promise. Thomas sheepishly raises his hand in the back of the crowd and says, "Uh, excuse me, Jesus. Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Now, hold on just a second, Tom. Hold on. What had Jesus been teaching them for three years? And what did he mean when he told them three times that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would be killed by the chief priests, and that he would be raised again to life on the, on the third day. He told them that. Look it up in the Gospels. Three times he told them that. It wasn't unclear. He didn't speak in a mystery. He said, I'm going, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be raised. So it had to be with at least a tiny little mild rebuke that Jesus answered his questions about where you're going and we don't know the way. Jesus looked at him and he said, Hey, Thomas... I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. What Thomas was looking for wasn't found by being given a map. It was found by being given a Savior. So Jesus has been raised, the disciples have seen him, and Thomas is sulking in the corner in his adamant position that seeing is believing. We've all said that, right? And Thomas says, nah, until I see it, I won't believe it. And so he waits like this in this miserable condition for eight full days. One whole week, Thomas waits like this. But Jesus, this is what I don't want you to miss. I'm not beating up on Thomas because here's the beauty of this story. Jesus, who is full of grace and full of truth, who is resplendent in his glory, who is tender-hearted and full of compassion, he chooses to make another appearance. And, and this appearance seems to be all about Thomas. Again, the doors are locked. Jesus is making a habit of this breaking and entering. The doors are locked and altering nothing of what he did. This is so beautiful, so powerful. Altering nothing of what he did the first time he, he appeared to the other ten disciples. This is what he does. He doesn't alter anything. He delivers the same message of reconciliation. His first words to Thomas. Peace be with you. 
I love that. I love that. Because see, some of you have made really big mistakes, like I have, in following Christ. You've missed opportunities. You haven't been where you needed to be. But I want you to to know, if you'll get where you need to be, you're going to hear the same message of reconciliation. God is a God of mercy. Peace be with you. Jesus turns to Thomas, who I'm sure is in a, needless to say, at least mild state of shock. And he makes eye contact. He says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Believe. He asked for it and he got it. Do you see how Jesus is so often accommodating to our weakness in his grace? Ah, I love it. Think back, Christian, think back. How many times have you been a total knucklehead and Jesus accommodated you in your weakness? Oh, man. That's what grace is, right? That's what mercy is, right? And Jesus doesn't come in saying, Oh, you didn't think I was alive, did you? Peace be with you. Here, you want to see him? Touch him. Now see my side? Go ahead. Knock yourself out, Thomas. He's so accommodating in his grace. It would have been appropriate for Jesus to level a scathing rebuke for Thomas's unbelief. But instead of a rebuke, he offers an, an invitation. Come on, Thomas, touch me. I'm alive. I'm here. Put your trust in me and believe, Thomas. And Thomas's response is one of absolute worship. He falls on his knees. He's completely amazed. And all he can utter are these words, My Lord and my God. His unbelief in this moment is forever dispelled. Tradition tells us that Thomas went on to India and died as a martyr there. Thomas acknowledges in this moment of proclaiming my Lord and my God, he acknowledges two things. When he says my Lord, he is acknowledging Christ's authority. You're the Lord, you're the boss, you're the one in charge. And he also acknowledges Christ's deity. You are my God. Now that's really important. Because sometimes people will say very falsely that Jesus never claimed to be God. But I want you to notice very carefully in this text that when Thomas looks at Jesus and says, My Lord and my God, Jesus didn't say, Hey, get up. No, don't take this too far. He accepted his worship. Why? Because he was his Lord and he was his God. Jesus makes a powerful statement in response to all of this. He says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. In his tender mercy, as we've said, Jesus accommodated the weak faith. But he points out that believers like you and I, who have never seen the physical form of the Lord Jesus, who have never touched him with our hands, Jesus is saying something wonderful for you, something relevant for you, 
in the 21st century, Jesus is saying that though you have never seen his physical form, though you have never touched him with your hands, you are at no disadvantage. Boy, that's good, isn't it? He's actually talking about you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I love that. We can rest securely on the eyewitness testimony of these men. We can put our full faith and confidence in it and know that there is a blessing to us who have believed, though we have not seen. When John writes his his first letter, his first epistle, he opens it with a word about this very thing. He says, that which is, this is the very first verse of, of uh, 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word, the word of life. He is saying, look guys, I'm an apostle. I walked with Jesus. I heard him with my ears. I saw him with my eyes. I looked around. I even touched him with my hands. When, when he had the last supper, I was the guy that was leaning on his chest. I know Jesus. But watch, and, and you, you could say, man, that's cool. That's cool. I, I, that must have been awesome, John. I wish I could have been there with you. But listen, he said, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. We're one of the ones that we saw it with our own eyes. But watch, and that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying, believe what I'm telling you, and you will be included in the number of witnesses of which I am a part, but more than that, more than that, you will also be included in the fellowship that we have with the Son of God Himself. Man, that's good. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The Bible was written and it was given to us so that even not seeing with physical eyes, not touching with physical hands, we might believe. Listen to me carefully. Jesus has risen. He is who he claims to be. And you can place all of your hope, all of all of your hope in him with total confidence. Why? Because blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What excuse do you have to put forth this morning for not believing. What would you say? What's your reason? Unless I see him with my eyes, if I put my hands in in, in his, his nail prints, if I touch his side, then I'll believe. What's your excuse? Though I have never seen the risen Lord's physical form, though I've Uh, Though I've never touched him, I have witnessed, listen to me carefully, I have witnessed the resurrection power of God transforming my life. After I believed, I was saved at 16 years old, I was lost as a goose in a snowstorm, had no intention, no use for Jesus Christ whatsoever, and he plucked me out of darkness and brought me into his marvelous light. That was 30 some odd years ago. And over those 30 some odd years, I have witnessed the resurrection power of God transforming my life after I believed. I was not there when Jesus walked out of the tomb, but I can tell you knowing who I was and who God is making me, that Jesus is alive. 
He's alive in me. He forgave my sin, which were many and not small. They weren't baby sins. I was 16 years old, but I was stacking up about 30 years worth of sin at that point. He forgave my sin. He changed my desires. How does he do that? In the midst of a crazy, dysfunctional life, he gave me peace. He restored my soul. And even this very day, he is changing my habits, some of my remaining desires. And and, and I'm coming to realize every day that in following him and longing for his transformative power, I have lost nothing of value by believing in him and by following him. I've lost nothing, but I have gained everything. There's nothing more that I need because I have Jesus. So my final appeal to you this morning If you consider yourself a believer, and especially if you do not, don't be like Thomas. Now, I hope you're like Thomas the way he ended, but the way he started, don't be like Thomas. Don't be like Thomas. Can I just plead with you this morning to believe, and in believing, be changed this morning? Because... I can ask you this because Jesus is alive. Listen, Lazarus rose from the dead. Jairus' daughter rose from the dead. The, The son of the widow at Nain rose from the dead. And one by one, they all died again. But Jesus is alive. He ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father and He lives forevermore making intercession for you. Jesus was not alive. Jesus is alive. He is alive today. And that is our proclamation. And so my appeal to you is to look to His bloody cross and peer into His empty tomb and be saved. Put your trust in Him. Would you all stand with me? This morning, we are going to receive communion at the table of the Lord. This is something we do every week. And we do it because it gives us an opportunity to remember the sacrifice of the Lord. And honestly, most of the emphasis of this sacrament of the church is on the death of the Lord Jesus. But I was reading through the passages where Jesus in the Gospels talks about the, um, the this this ordinate this ordinance of communion, and I realized something that he talked about his resurrection in there in, in ways that I had not seen. I probably should have, but I hadn't seen it before. He doesn't just say "remember me." He does say that, but he doesn't just say "remember me." He says at one point, "I will not eat of this again until until a dead man can't make plans for the future, can he?" But he says, I will eat it with you one day again. And until that time, remember, remember what was purchased for you by my blood, by my body. So what I'm going to ask you to do now is if, well, let me say this first. If you are a believer, we welcome you to this table. 
if your sins have been forgiven because you've placed your trust in Jesus and your trust in Jesus alone, if you've repented from your sins and are following him, then we invite you to this table. If you haven't, we are not trying to, in some cruel fashion, withhold something from you, but this will mean nothing to you. And so we're going to ask you to just, uh, just stay in your place. If, if, this, if that's not who you are, stay in your place. But what we always like to say that if that is you, please, while you're waiting, right where you're standing, will you just turn your life over to the Lord Jesus? Will you just say, Lord, I believe in you. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I put all of my trust in your ability to save me. And I reject any confidence that I have in myself to save myself. I reject it. I'm not going to try to get into heaven with good works. I am placing all of my trust and confidence in you. Will you just pray a prayer like that? And if you do, I promise you that Jesus is going to save you. He's going to save you if you pray that in faith and if you mean it and if you turn from your sins and follow Jesus. In the Bible, when people followed Jesus, they left everything to follow him. That doesn't mean that you come, you know, empty your bank account and give away all your stuff. What it means is you say, from now on, everything I am, everything I think, everything I do, everything I have belongs to Jesus because he's Lord. Just like Thomas, you fall to your knees and you say, my Lord, the one who's in control, and my God, my only Savior, the one who has deity. So I want to invite you to do that this morning. And then one last thing, if you do that, you can do this very privately. We're not going to make a big show of you. But would you come and let me know? I want to celebrate with you. I don't want to, I don't want to give you a hassle. I want to celebrate with you. This is big news. This is the greatest day of your life if you do that. So I want to celebrate with you. And I want, we can do that privately. You can come to me privately and just let me know that you prayed a prayer like that. But if you haven't done that yet, will you just remain in your place? But the rest of you, I'm going to invite to come and, and um, receive the, the elements and then take them back to your seat and we will take them together. In the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul in teaching about this ordinance that we're about to partake of, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken. And this morning especially, Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken so that we could be healed. The Bible says that that by your stripes that we are healed and that the the, the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon you. So we thank you that your body was broken. But God, this morning especially, we thank you that your body was raised and that our hope is in your resurrection. And so Lord, help us to, to think about your resurrection, to think about the wholeness that you bring to our life by your resurrection power. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we gather around this cup this morning, this cup of remembrance, this cup of blessing, as Paul calls it. And Lord, we thank you that its red contents remind us of your blood that washes us away all of our sin. That no matter how guilty we were in the depravity of our own lostness, Lord, we are now clean and holy and robed in righteousness because you shed your blood and washed us clean. And we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it is your blood that enables us to recognize your resurrection and to look forward to our own. When you raise our frail bodies up and you raise them up to be glorified and to be brought into your presence forever. And we thank you for this, this purchase of your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup. And now if you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to pronounce a benediction over you for this very special day. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.